When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. everybody quick public service announcement little housekeeping little housekeeping before we jump into this week's episode uh laurel and i are going to be on vacation in europe so there's going to be two weeks of no podcast postings no midnight myth for two weeks so very very sorry i know you're broken hearted i know however if you want to see what we're up to in europe please follow us at Twitter at at the Midnight Myth. Yeah. As we will be posting regular updates of what's happening in Europe and its implications on storytelling. Yeah, and we'll be visiting, you know, some of the major cities in Europe that really are the seat of Western civilization or the, the place where so many important stories from Western civilization came from. So we'll come back with tons of knowledge from London, from France, from Italy, and we'll be really excited to share with you some of the stories that we learn on our journey. And definitely, I and I promise to put everything that we do that's cool on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so please follow our Twitter if you don't already, because we're going to be bombarding it with photos of Laurel and I at the Coliseum. Woohoo! Be jealous. Anyway, so it uh, got me thinking a few major things are happening in storytelling for me as a, a fan, and that is Game of Thrones is about to return. Yeah, season seven. So I, I asked myself, uh, you know, a question like, what were some of my favorite, if not favorite moments of season six? And that kind of that conversation was the genesis and the inspiration of this episode where we're going to do a little season six character focus. But first, let's start with our favorite moments of season six. Well, I got to say, you know, I don't want there to be any spoilers here on the podcast. So if you haven't caught up on season six yet, I would say turn this off right now. One of Please. my favorite moments is actually, uh, but, but you've been warned, turn it off. We're warned, spoiling off. everything at the end of the season. Cersei totally blowing up the, uh, the septum with, uh, Wildfire. wildfire. I yeah. was about to say fiend fire, which is from Harry Potter right. with wildfire. That was awesome. And a very like suspense driven the way it was done. 
You know, like I totally mm-hmm. saw that wildfire was going to be used to blow things up. Like they but alluded you were still to that on the edge of your seat. Absolutely. Even knowing that there's going to be something with Cersei and wildfire and knowing this was it, it was still done really well. Yeah. I would say that's one of my favorite moments from season six. And really, uh, there were some unexpected things about it. You know, some characters that we weren't expecting to depart so quickly departed in that episode. Yes. Uh, tons of characters, the entire Tyrells. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, I also love the, I loved the battle of the bastards when the, um, Knights of the Vale kind of came in, the cavalry came and yeah, the, that moment of triumph and a really well choreographed battle scene. One of the most engaging battle scenes I've ever seen on screen. As a history nerd that loves reading ancient military tactics, I thought the Battle of the Bastards was one of the best cinematic renditions of ancient combat, showing that a organized disciplined army always trumps a even a numerically superior, right, not as yeah. organized, more aggressive army. And I thought they showed that really well when they were using the very tall sort of almost Greek phalanx with spears. Oh, that was strategy crazy. of the Boltons yeah. just slicing down the wildlings. Um, yeah, I thought that was great. And, uh, and all those moments were good, but I would say the best episode and the best moment, in my opinion, came earlier, but it's also, I would, I'm going to hopefully convince you by the end of this, the most problematic for the theme of the show And that is episode five, The Door. The Door. And in that, I want to do, and hopefully you guys enjoy, a little bit of a case study on the character Bran. Didn't see that coming, huh? Yeah. A lot of people don't really like Bran. And you know what? I'm going to be honest. He's probably one of the worst characters. But the implications of Bran and his power and what they mean and what they mean for the philosophy of Game of Thrones. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean necessarily the philosophy of, oh, it's too platonic. It's this. I mean, what this universe is actually made of. Mm-hmm. In substance, we've got a a really big uh, reveal in that episode. And we're going to talk about it. Yeah. So should we jump in and, and uh, you know, explore Bran's journey throughout this episode and how it relates to Bran's journey as a character up to this point. Yeah. Do you want me to give like a super quick, concise recap of Bran the character? Sure. So Bran is a nobleman. He is the son of Ned Stark and Catelyn Stark. Uh, he is the second oldest son. Second youngest. A uh, second youngest son and also second oldest. Yeah, so there's three sons, so he's in the middle. Oh, okay, yeah. sorry. So there's Rob Stark, Bran Stark, Rick and Stark, then there's Arya Stark and Sansa Stark. I was counting Jon Snow and, and thinking about he's, all the girls, too. Yeah, so Jon Snow is not actually a Stark, so that's why I left him out. Well, yes, I know. Um, yeah, and so Bran, in the very first episode one, season one, first book, he gets thrown from the window because he's a very gifted climber after he sees uh, Cersei and Jaime Lannister having sex in a room. Ew. He is then uh, crippled from the waist down. Uh, he, for a brief time, kind of oversees and acts as the Lord of Winterfell, where Rob Stark is waging what became known as the War of Five Kings, where he is going out there trying to uh, sort of usurp the Lannister usurption, if you will. Um, <laughs> so ultimately, uh, so Theon Greyjoy, the steward and heir to the uh, Iron Islands, he ends up 
uh, taking Winterfell, Bran escapes with Georgian and Mora Reed. Georgian Reed acts as his sort of uh, spiritual guide, and their job, the Reeds, are to escort him to a place called the Three-Eyed Raven. They don't really know where this is, but Georgian Reed has some sort of precognitive visions in his dreams, and he senses that uh, Bran is super powerful and his power has yet to really manifest. We learn that Bran can do a thing called warging, which means he can leave his consciousness and put his consciousness into that of an animal. Right. And it's like as, an astral projection, kind of. Absolutely. His brain can take control of the brain, which he does with his direwolf at several times, direwolf named Summer. Uh, and then he learns his manservant, Hodor, uh, who is just this big, big, gaping, huge dude who just goes, Hodor, Hodor. Yeah, all he says is Hodor. And he is his mind is simple enough that Bran can work into it. Eventually, they, after a lot of walking through the forest, they get to the Three-Eyed Raven. Turns out he's a man in a tree. He teaches Bran to uh, warg into the Werewoods, which are the trees to which the old gods are worshipped as the conduits of and the manifestation of. So he can put his mind into these trees. When he does... He is able to see different points, and we only ever see him go into the past. So he, with the Three-Eyed Raven, are warging into the past. Uh, this is a very magical place that he is now at with the Three-Eyed Ravens. The White Walkers, who are in pursuit of Bran, we don't know why, are not able to enter into this tree that they live. There's a magical spell that protects them. There are also these creatures called the Children of the Forest, original inhabitants of Westeros before the first men came and went to war with them. Uh, we learned through the warging uh, various things. We learned that uh, Jon Snow is actually half Targaryen. Uh, you were warned for spoilers and is not actually the son of Ned Stark, but the son of Ned Stark's sister and Rhaegar Targaryen. Still a bastard either way. Yes, but we learned that he is half Targaryen, half Stark. Through these, we learned that... Uh, one of Ned Stark's most famous sword battles was actually when someone stabbed the guy from behind. Uh, we learned that Hodor used to have the name Willis and didn't uh, had a, a much more elaborate vocabulary other than just Hodor. And uh, then we get to this point in this episode in which Bran wargs back into the past, sees the, the first White Walker uh, being born by an obsidian dagger, which is a dagger forged of fire, of dragon fire, into the heart of a man by the children of the forest, turning him into the White Walkers as a weapon to kill men. He then Brand wargs back again. The Night King, leader of the White Walkers, sees Brand, touches Brand, breaks the spell that protects them in there. All of the White Walkers storm onto the tree. While this is happening, Brand is in the past warging with the Three-Eyed Raven. The Three-Eyed Raven gets knifed by the White Walkers. Bran, trying to escape, tries to warg into Hodor in both the past and the present, and Hodor overhears the command, hold the door, which is to hold the door that they're escaping by, in which the White Walkers then rip Hodor apart in a gut-wrenching, one of the truly most sad scenes in the entire fucking thing. Yeah, really emotional. And also, as he sacrifices himself to save Bran... Uh, at the same time, past Hodor, Willis gets trapped in a life of simplicity where all he can ever say is Hodor, which is shortening hold the door. Yeah, it's just really just devastating moment where he's he's lying on the ground, he's kind of writhing, and he's saying, hold the door, 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 Hodor, 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 oh, Hodor. and then... 
Credits. Credits. Oh, man. Um, Just breaks your heart. Tragic, tragic. Um, So I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say season six is my least favorite Game of Thrones season. Yeah, me too. Um, And I would say it's my least favorite because I do believe objectively it's the worst. Yeah, and if... I, I feel like it figured itself out in some of the later episodes and it, it, you know, hit a stride, but the first half of that season, I, I think was a, a bit of a mess. And I think a huge part of that is they've gone a little, they've gone off script essentially, you know, they no longer have Martin, the genius behind it, driving the philosophy, driving the storytelling, driving the characters. So it's a little bit like, you know, uh, a, a train that's gone off the track but, by by design. But this episode is tight. This episode, yes. which is the culmination after seasons of brand being the story that we're all just like, okay, let's get through the brand scene. We find like the brand scenes. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's be honest, just watching someone who can't walk walk into a wolf as he walks through the woods is not compelling TV. You know, and it's okay. not, it's not compelling in the books either, but it always represented something cool. And yeah, the idea sure. is, is that there are only a few individuals in the show that have the ability to break out of the Game of Thrones and follow a a higher or more noble path than the path of just simply fighting for land and killing other people to secure more of it. Yeah. And Bran is one of the characters that's on that journey, not participating in the actual Game of Thrones. His quest is a spiritual quest, a quest that originally starts with, can I get my legs back, turns into the, you're the most powerful person potentially. We need to get you to a place where your power can ruminate and grow so that it works and it works as a force of, of and it's not necessarily uh, good in the traditional, I do good, I do bad, but good in the idea that the highest good is knowledge for the pursuit of knowledge, mm-hmm. achievement intellectually and spiritually. And... In this, we see the culmination of that journey, and it ends in a, the tragic fashion of seeing the origin of Hodor. Now, uh, I'm going to take us back to ancient Greece a little bit. I'm going to talk about a bunch of people called the atomists. And yes, they did come up with the term Adam. They also came up with a philosophy called determinism. The idea was that the universe was governed by basic particles they theorized exist called atoms, and the makeup of atoms determined everything. Um, Now, this theory is where we come up with the modern idea of atoms and the modern idea of determinism that's been around since then and debated uh, ad nauseum. And what we see here at the end of this episode is the culmination of Brand's spiritual journey up to this point is that we see a deterministic universe, meaning Hodor doesn't have choice. His choice has been determined by him, for him, pardon me, not by, you know, the basic composition of atoms, but by the composition and his proximity towards the new three-eyed raven, Bran. Bran being the thing that strips choice and agency from Hodor and makes his life all one part of what's one moment for Bran is an entire lifetime for Hodor. And in that, I think it cuts the central theme of the whole season. Tragic as it is, filmed exceptionally well, heart moving. I mean, when we saw that, everyone like started hashtag hold the door. Like we were all in tears out of the, the, the tragedy of it. 
But philosophically, it answers the question of choice. If there are characters so powerful that they can exist in multiple times simultaneously and strip agency, the ability for something and someone to be an agent that acts independently of free will away from another character, none have agency. Because free will is one of those things that's a mutually exclusive idea. Philosophers call that, meaning free will is either true or not true. It can't both be true and not true at the same time. And Hodor not having free will, right, means that no one has free will. And it means choice, which is up to this point, the central theme of Game of Thrones. Who are these characters and their choices? Their choices determine whether we feel empathetic towards them, sympathetic towards them, or antipathy towards them. We start out hating Jamie Lannister because of his choice to cripple Bran. We end up kind of liking Jamie Lannister for his choices to not be a ruthless tyrant and try to right some of these wrongs. Uh, we love Ned Stark for his choice to put honor above the Game of Thrones, and we hate Joffrey for his choice for chopping his head off for it. But then here we realize that the truth of the universe in this, in this universe is that there is no choice. Everything's been predetermined. Every moment of time intertwines in this web in which the future is known as sim simultaneously as the past. There is no time. The idea of one thing leading to the consequence of another thing, well, Brands travel into the past shatters that illusion. And his ability to infect, affect change in both past and present shows that there isn't a causal link in one part of the chain to another. And in that way, what does this world mean when none of the characters actually have the power to choose. It makes everything seem, you know, less fun to watch. I think that's a really great point. I, I also, though, I feel like it's a little bit of a leap to go from uh, Hodor doesn't have choice to everybody doesn't have choice. Um, I'm thinking about determinism in general, and I'm thinking about Newtonian determinism and how the the understanding of that philosophy is that, so if you had like a supercomputer or your brain was a supercomputer, everything follows the basic laws of motion. Atoms are going to behave the way they're going to behave. And it's going to be a really complicated thing to predict the future. But if you had a supercomputer that could handle all that equation, you could write the formula for the rest of time uh, because things are going to behave according to those laws. Uh, and so things fitting into a deterministic universe falls a little bit under that umbrella of everything following those exact laws of nature, those laws of physics, those laws of science. Um, and in Game of Thrones, of course, we have so many influences from uh, religion. We have a lot of uh, priestesses, priests, we have... Uh, prophets who are constantly espousing the um, the will of the gods or the one god that they follow or this other god that they follow, the old gods or the new. Um, and so it, it gets, in a way, a little difficult to read any one uh, philosophy into Game of Thrones because of the way these stories are so uh, entwined and the way they kind of fray off into different um, channels. Uh, so, yeah, I, th I think 
I, I need a little more help seeing this uh, Hodor Bran uh, circle as indicative of a greater uh, philosophical shift in the show. Because I think, and we were rewatching this episode, uh, I think side by side with this Hodor experience, with this warging into the past and the present, uh, we were also juxtaposing it with scenes where characters made choices where characters did things that were maybe unexpected or maybe were expected, but were faced with very different, uh, difficult moral crossroads, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think, uh, I don't think the, the show writers and George R. R. Martin sat down and said, we're going to create a major philosophical conundrum. And, you know, I, I don't think it was their intention to undercut the theme of choice directly, meaning that I don't think they sat there and thought, oh, hey, yeah, no, free will is a mutually exclusive idea. It can either exist or not exist. And if you take it away from one, you've taken it away for all, right? Like, I don't think that was the intention. I think it's the unintended consequence of choosing style over substance, of choosing something that's tragic that hits home without thinking through the actual full implications of what it means for the broader narrative. So I think it's by accident. And, you know, when I sit there and say that it's a far leap, well, yet the entire episode was about people making choices. You know, every single scene, you see a character make a choice or a group of characters. Like, good example, there's the king's moot in that. Right. You know, the king's moot is an election for a king. The Iron Ireland, the Ironborn and the Iron Islands. Wow, that's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't have a king, so they need to choose one. So they choose a king, you know. Um, so that echoes throughout everything. Sansa confronts Littlefinger. She chooses not to kill him. She chooses to use the intelligence that she gives him while choosing to lie to John about the source of that intelligence. So we see these themes only for it to end up my, you know, my point saying that uh, Hodor's lack of choice means no one's lack of choice. It, it deals with the idea that uh, for a deterministic universe to have choice in it, it needs uh, a direct linear causality of events. So what does that mean? Any deterministic philosopher, at least that I know, that argues for free will says, yes, the universe is determined by the basic governance of these principles. Uh, for the sake of the show Game of Thrones, it's the principles of magic, right? It's not the principles of science. Right. Right. But for the sake of our world, we'll say it's the principles of science, right? But because I can make a choice in that causal chain that affects the next outcome, there's evidence to say, okay, there are individuals that have free will. Right. Right. So two things happen with that. A, that philosophy is a contradiction. It doesn't hold up under examination. Not at all, yeah. An um, Enlightenment British philosopher named David Hume like ripped this apart, wrote books and essays about it, about that was just a very sloppy way to, to have people feel good about being both deterministic and with free will. Um, you know, and then two, this show undercuts that idea as well by the idea that it breaks temporal causality. It breaks the idea that things are happening one after another because brand can go back in time and affect things, right? So brand can break this mold. It now becomes a loop, 
Right, right? So, yeah. So Hodor was not a line. It was a circle, Yeah. in other words. So this is an interesting symbol, too. Uh, I was thinking about circles and loops and wheels, and I was thinking a lot about Daenerys' wheel speech. Is that season five? Yeah, uh, five or six. If it's yeah. late, that's it. She'll break the wheel. Yeah, where she talks about uh, you know, how all of history is a wheel, and maybe today uh, Stark is on top, or... Lannister is on top or Baratheon and then the next one is on bottom and it it bears a great deal of significance to the Elizabethan um idea or the, even the ancient Egyptian idea um of the wheel of fortune which was something that uh you know has we've talked about on the blog before it's really big in uh Shakespeare he talks about it a lot in Hamlet there's some good imagery of that it's also on the tarot cards on every tarot deck the wheel of fortune the idea is that if you're at the top of the wheel, you are going to come back down. And if you're at the bottom, you have nowhere to go but up. So there's a lot of that imagery of the sort of straightforward procession of time and the straightforward procession of fortune itself. Uh, so this pattern that can't be broken. And Daenerys is declaring that she's going to break the wheel. Uh, and then we have sort of this wheel there's a loop this circle that's created by bran in this warging tr field trip that he takes essentially back to winterfell where he influences uh the young willis and this turns into the moment that hodor saves his life it's really interesting that time loop being created because it also reminds me of a lot of eastern philosophy too you know you think about the buddha um, and you think about one of the Buddha's nicknames or uh, titles was the Chakra Vartan, uh, a chakra meaning wheel. And they talk about in a lot of Eastern philosophy or yoga about your, your chakras, which are the wheels that your body aligns on, and the Buddha being the one who turns the wheel. And in Hinduism, when you break out of the wheel of samsara. Uh, so there's a lot of this imagery that's... Uh, that's connecting to both Eastern and Western philosophies, talking about breaking out of that wheel as a way to find freedom, as a way to liberate yourself from those patterns. And then this moment of Bran creating a wheel to free himself. So it's awesome that you mentioned uh, ancient Indic and uh, Buddhist thought mm -hmm. because they are absolutely quintessential deterministic philosophies. Right. You know, so they are saying that, you know, that all life will eventually, after enough reincarnations, be able to escape the samsara and be able to reach nirvana and reach being a Buddha. That is the evolution that all life will get there. However, it requires, at least in Buddhism, it requires great a great deal of work, a great deal of, uh, you know, we look again at, at Arya uh, who is becoming, who's trying to become a faceless assassin, trying to relinquish the self, trying to get rid of her desires, because as we know in Buddhism, desire leads to suffering. Uh, there's, this, there's this idea of making that choice to strip away the self, which is absolutely non-deterministic, right? Uh, I, so I would argue all religions are deterministic in their very nature. You know, and... You know, and it's really hard to reconcile. Like some of the biggest philosophical problems with with religion are the problems of free will that they they present. Mm -hmm. And I don't think 
you know, Buddhism or Hinduism are free from that as much as I don't think worshiping the drowning God is free from that. Right. Um, and so I would say that art is, uh, uh, so, you know, what, what the faceless men are trying to teach Arya is that, you know, you're nothing. Your struggle is nothing. It means nothing. Um, and you need to, to recognize that yourself is an illusion and you need to break that down and strive to be a different and better and more aesthetic thing, right? Which is the faceless man, uh, which is in a Game of Thrones world also means assassin. Yeah. Because the aesthetics kill people because it's Game of Thrones. Why not? That's pretty awesome. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought there. No, no, okay. <laughs> no, my my point, I was thinking like, yes, the aesthetics kill. Yeah. Right. But my my point being that, uh, you know, Yagen Hagar, her her mentor and Waif, her mentor, are constantly framing this, though, in the the language of choice. You know, they're constantly saying, what do you choose? Do you choose revenge? Do you choose uh, servitude? Do you choose being Arya or do you choose being a no one? You know, the the thing that's interesting about Hodor is that uh, it, it is free of that. It's free from a dogma that says on some level you're going to, as an individual, be accountable. There's no accountability for Hodor because he has no choice. It exposes the raw makeup of this universe and says that choice is a lie, right? And that to me reverberates throughout all of this. Are they all lies? You know, are all of the choices lies? Hodor has none. Of, and we kind of know this already, right? Because when does Hodor ever choose anything? But now we see in plain view the lack of choice. So it might seem like Arya makes a choice, but she really doesn't. It might seem like Tyrion makes choices, but he really doesn't. And Bran gets to see this and Bran truly is the person outside the samsara, right? Yeah. So Bran's choices matter. And in that way, he is that much closer in the game of Thronesian way to the divine. Wow. Which is interesting, but also kind of, it's so tough for me to reconcile the beauty of that episode and, but what it means philosophically for a show that its central theme to me was always choice. You know, it's so tough for me to be like, but is there any choice in this? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a really interesting contradiction. It's a really interesting paradox for us to, you know, go into season seven with. It's reminding me again, and I'll I'll always, always bring things back to Harry Potter, but... uh, all roads to Hogwarts. All roads lead to Hogwarts. But it's very explicit in the Harry Potter series that the central thesis of, uh, you know, this whole story is that our choices determine our outcomes. Uh, and we have characters like Voldemort who believe very strongly in fulfilling a destiny. And that becomes a, a strong driver towards evil, towards hate, towards violence. Whereas we have characters like Harry who while they think they may have been set up for a certain darkness, uh, can really break out and and make the right choice, uh, do the right thing. It's, oh God, you say it and it sounds so cheesy, but it's like so beautiful. Um, but we had a similar contradiction in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix when the prophecy is introduced. Uh, and prophecy, which has never been... Um, has never been something that was taken seriously in the Harry Potter series. And we talked about this on another podcast with 
you know, Hermione's uh, skepticism about divination, about telling the future, and how I thought it was so funny that that was a bridge too far when they can literally like feed a defeat a troll in the girls' bathroom. But it makes so much sense with the uh, the sort of sensibilities of this universe that everything is based on the idea that we have free will, and so. Harry really grapples with, in The Order of the Phoenix, how a prophecy could be a weapon when really it's about us making a choice to do good, to do bad, to fulfill you know, our own selfish desires or to work for others. And so I think J.K. Rowling is grappling with some of the same things in those last few books that we are here. So I'm interested to see... Based uh, on this, although yeah, well, so yeah. so J.K. Rowling never reveals what the nature of the universe is. There's no there's no character like Bran in it, right? So in J.K. Rowling, Harry's triumph is the triumph of choice, right? Right. So you know, um, you know, with Game of Thrones, we're not at the end, so it's tough to make that comparison yeah. to. Um, we're going to see what it means to have a character that has that it has the power of God that Bran now has. I don't know a story that has a character that's so close to a god as Brand is and what that's going to mean now for the rest of the show. I mean, the fan theories all over the internet are wild and I tend to think they're correct that Brand is everywhere at all times now. Uh, so there's a character, Brand, which means Raven in Celtic, I think. I made that, I may, may have made that <laughs> up. So don't hold me to that. Uh, but there's a character, Brand the Builder, who builds the wall. Yeah, he forms House Stark. right. There's Raisin Bran, which is a really great cereal, and I feel like everybody's tried that. And you put a little sugar on the raisins, and that's really good. Yeah. 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 Uh, but so, you know, I think it's a very, it, it's a it's a tough leap for me to go from Bran, who is pretty much a living god, to Voldemort. Um, but, I mean, I see I see where, where you're coming from. I think J.K. Rowling deals with it in thus far a neater more tighter way and an explicit way and a purposeful way. I think what you're really coming to in this is that it's haphazard this was kind of a haphazard way. It's thrown in season five yeah. or episode five, season six, right in the middle and not addressed again. And that to me is so freaking sloppy, right? Like it's you, dangerous. Yeah. You, you just throw out this, this idea of this, at the very least, we can confirm with one character, Hodor, there's a deterministic loop which his life replicates in that breaks down agency and there's only one individual responsible for it who now has godlike power and we don't come back to it or address it. To me, it's just bad fucking writing. You know what just came into my head? A little bit of a Midnight Myth boomerang. You were saying it's hard for me to think of a story where another character has such a godlike power. And this is a very different story, but I'm thinking about the movie Stranger with Fiction, Stranger Than Fiction right now. With Will Ferrell? With Will Ferrell and Emma Thompson, where Emma Thompson, the writer, you know, is writing her her book, Death and Taxes. And then this like real life flesh and blood man, Harold Crick, starts to hear the narration in his head of, of his life that's being written by this writer. That's and a so, great boomerang. Yeah. Uh, and it's a really interesting existential uh, kind of question in the form of a movie. Uh, and you it wonder. tackles, and it, well, so it, 
so you say that that movie tackles that central question mm-hmm. head on, head on. Do you we know? have free will? And they, yeah. they don't waste any time trying to explain why Harold is suddenly hearing narration, even though he's lived a perfectly normal life up until now. But it really does grapple with the question of what if you had no free will, you were barreling towards your death as ordained by this godlike uh, voice in your head and what would you do with those last days? What what choices could you make differently? Well, and in that one, it answers the question, it's free will, because he gets a pre-copy of the book, reads about his own death, goes to the author and says, hey, this is really a truly good work of art, so I choose to die. And then she goes, I can't kill him. I like him too much. And so she chooses to not make a great work of art and just make a passable book and lets him live. So it it tackles that question directly and answers it and says, hey, this is actually about free will, and we do have free will. Interesting, because I read it totally differently. Oh, because go he, for it. he survives because she changes the book. His bold act of self, self-sacrifice is what influences her to make that decision differently, right? That's exactly what I'm saying, though. Right, but they he both, doesn't have... He makes a choice to say... Hey, this is great. I will die for your book. And she's just like, well, I can't like both of them make a choice that affects the outcome. Yeah. But then she still determines what happens to him that next day. She could have let him die. By which gives him freedom to choose for the rest of his life. Oh my God. Right. So she does that. And now twisted. Now he gets to choose. So now his life is not governed by the book anymore. Right. Yeah. So by, by this thing. So he gets to live his life and the whole thing they they never try to explain why. It's just assumed that this is what's happening. Yeah. Well, the thing that is troublesome to me about, about that episode, what it means for the rest of the show, is that it's never, ever been addressed before, and it's not being addressed again. And I worry it's just going to be in season seven, oh, yeah, Bran has godlike powers, but now he's wandering through the woods again, so he can't use them until we find another place where he can. I and think that- you should write a letter. To the showrunners. <laughs> I've considered it. Like, I don't know if you guys know, but you just broke the Game of Thrones universe. Well, they did. They sure did. They absolutely 100% did. And if if it's an intentional strategy, then I would like to see it unfold. My suspicion is that George R. R. Martin had an intentional strategy, and he was like, by the way, this is the origin of Hoarder. And they're like, oh, we can't wait to use this. This yeah. is good TV. Yeah. And and I think that's what happened. And it was, here. so let me say this. It was fucking great TV. It was really good TV. It really turned me around on season six. It did. It made me be like, I love this show still. When the first four episodes, I'm like, man, this is really kind of bad. For Game mm-hmm. of Thrones, on the standard of yeah. Game of Thrones, which is the gold standard. Yeah. And then that happened, and then it's just like, I'm right back in it. I can't wait to see what's happening. But, um, you know, it's um, it's an interesting thing. We'll see where we go now that God walks the earth and that God's name is Bran. Blech. We shall see. Um, I think the other thing that's tough about it, too, is that it was for Bran's journey it was cheap it it definitely was i agree with you there he didn't earn this power quite yet to me 
No. Um, I, I kind of think that was purposeful, though. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, of course, we get that moment where the three-eyed raven realizes what's happening and that the walkers are coming for them and says, it's now time for you to become me. You're going to become the three-eyed raven. And Bran says, am I ready? And he goes, no. So he tries to give him all that he has right away. And I think we're going to see what unfolds. Obviously, we saw some... Uh, some interesting developments in the last few episodes of the season. But uh, we're going to see what unfolds with Bran inheriting this power too soon in a, in, a place, uh, in a place mentally and, of course, physically where he is not able to fully understand how to use it and wield it. And maybe that will be helpful for this problem that you're anticipating of him having godlike power. He has no idea how to control or, or really use it at this moment. He was able to successfully warg into Hodor and successfully, um, you know, make this escape happen because he was completely in survival mode, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And the old guy's brand, right? I mean, so He's I've him, heard that. Yeah, right? yeah, I think yes. Yeah. But also, if he was, and this is a closed loop, right? Then why wouldn't the three-eyed raven have seen all of this coming? Why wouldn't he know? How do we know he didn't? Right, but he did seem kind of surprised. But he did seem kind of surprised. You would think that, that, that he Brand would have paced the uh, you know three-eyed raven training a little faster if he knew that was on its way. Yeah, it's tough to read that the the actual old man in the tree. Or maybe he can't because we're deterministic and he can't make the choice differently this time around. And he can't see the end of his own loop. Right. And he's not actually God. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, what do you guys think out there? Yeah, tell us what you think. What do you think of the... we're stumped. So, in truth... That was a tree yeah. joke. In truth... Uh, yeah, uh-huh. I see what you did there. Uh-huh. In truth is, what Brand represents is a philosophy called predeterminism, mm-hmm. meaning that everything has been predetermined. Um, determinism, for the most part, when you say that, there's still room, some argue, for free choice, though David Hume rips that apart. I mentioned that earlier. <laughs> and if you've never read David Hume, he's pretty freaking smart. You know, I, when David Hume says something's a bad idea, it's usually because it's a bad idea. Sure. And determinism and free will, it's kind of a bad idea. Um, but that is for our podcast about philosophy, not our podcast about storytelling, which we don't have yet. Right. But we will come back from Paris with a whole lot of interesting enlightenment takes on our favorite stories. Um, shall we? Any any last boomerangs about Bran? So. I'm uh, I'm ready to play a game, I think. Yeah, um, I just want to say this to the Game of Thrones faithful. I'm one of you. I came down pretty hard on on this season. I still freaking love it. I just want to say that I still love Game of Thrones. Yeah, don't think you do. don't think I become you're, a hater. You're only critical because you hold it to the highest possible standard, the standard of itself. Exactly, the and bar that it set so high. When it is light, slightly under the bar, which season six to me was slightly under the bar despite its gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching, great cinematography, I felt it had the worst storytelling. Yeah. Um, Guys, and we are going to have many more Game of Thrones episodes in the future. Uh, We have a few that we're already cogitating in the backs of our minds, but if you have a character that you would love for us to look into more deeply or if you have an episode you want us to go through scene by scene, let us know. We would love to hear your suggestions. 
And uh, with that, let's move to the game. Do your thing, Laurel. All right. So every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, we like to play a little game to have some fun with the characters and situations we've been talking about. Uh, so we would love to hear your responses as well if you want to play along at home. Uh, I'm sure many of you have asked yourself this question or taken many Facebook quizzes before. Uh, but please tweet us your responses at the Midnight Myth on Twitter or uh, visit us on Facebook, w, or it's the, just search the Midnight Myth Podcast on Facebook, or hit us up on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. Without further ado, Derek. And just another reminder, uh, we won't do an episode for the next two weeks, but we will be tweeting pictures from our European trip. Yeah. All right, so the game is thus. You need to tell me what is the Game of Thrones house that you most closely identify with, not too original there, but the little extra spice there is what house and who is your favorite character within said house. Awesome. And uh, maybe a little why. why. Why this house? Why this character? Absolutely. Me first? You first. All right. I am choosing House Tyrell. Yeah. House Tyrell nice. of Highgarden. I like it. I've I always, like it. Yeah. I've always kind of identified Great with House, house. Tyrell. Um, part of that is because they kind of feel like the Ravenclaws of Westeros. Um, I'm down with that. Yeah. I'm totally down with that. I like that they have a rose as their sigil and they talk about growing strong and a whole lot of like garden, natural, natural world imagery. Um, What's interesting to me about the Tyrells is, so I I love watching Game of Thrones and I love watching the combat, but I am definitely not a fighter. I'm a lover. Um, So I don't, I don't think in Westeros I would be like super at the forefront of being tied up in the Game of Thrones. I don't think I would be fighting in an army. I don't think I would be trying to take the throne. However, I, you know, I, I can be kind of sneaky. I can be, you know, sort of, you know, have the wheels turning intellectually. I definitely see how I could politically work my way up the ladder, uh, by you're charming the whole court right now. Yeah. By, you know, using charm and by, uh, you know, exploiting my relationships. So I think that, I would fit in much better there than with like a house Targaryen, which would be, or a house Lannister who are fighting for their power no matter what. And it's all right there on their sleeve. I feel like I'm a little more subdued. So who of the Tyrells is your favorite? Oh, you know, I'm talking about Lady Olena. I didn't know if you were going to go Olena or Marjorie. I didn't know. I didn't know which way it was going to go. I love Lady Olena. One of the best characters. Played by Dame Diana Rigg, one of the greatest actresses in all of Europe. If you've ever seen the uh, the TV show The Avengers, nothing to do with the Marvel Avengers, but it's more of like a spy show. Um, check it out. Oh, my God, it's so great. She's amazing. Uh, incredible actress. But Olena is this, you know, matriarch character, extremely powerful woman in this family, has a lot of political pull and like takes no bullshit from anyone, not even Cersei Lannister. And I've been coming around to Cersei Lannister like pretty hardcore. She's becoming one of my favorite characters, Said even no though one she's ever. despicable. Like I'm, I'm starting to really like, really feel like, oh yeah, girl slay. Um, but that, I just love that made that, me die a little inside. I love. I mean, look at the casual like wine sip as she blows up everybody she's ever met. She's just like, Mm-mm, just take another sip of wine. Uh, it's kind of amazing. But Lady Olena takes no bullshit from her, even though she's like the most powerful person in King's Landing. So Lady Olena, House Tyrell, that's me. Ravenclaws of Westeros. 
Well done. I, I love all of those answers. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think anyone would be shocked if I told you that my house was House Stark. Oh. You know, grim, bearded, northern, stoic, honorable. Fuck the game. But if we got to play it, we're just going to take a sword right through it. Yeah. They're like 100% Derek to a T. Um, you know, people that actually say, you know what, it might make sense that if I say something that I should actually believe the thing I say. You're totally a Stark. And, and you know, maybe I'm not going to be duplicitous. Doesn't work necessarily work well in the quote unquote Game of Thrones as evidence of Ned Stark getting his head chopped off. But God damn, it makes great heroes. It makes great people that can actually do good things uh, within the world. And I am... A Stark, you know, the whole thing to me, the whole story of Game of Thrones, uh, I look at it through the lens of the tragedy of the Starks. Yeah, absolutely. The downfall of the once greatest house, great houses of Westeros. And we're seeing their downfall and their demise and their like separation into obscurity. I mean, we can go through one by one and and, and say how unstark like they are. Jon Snow is half Targaryen, not even Ned Stark's bastard, right? Rob Stark is dead. Sansa Stark is now a conniving, backstabbing Littlefinger. Arya Stark is the most unStark-like at all. Yeah. In her quest for vengeance, she's lost her fucking soul. She super has. Yeah. Uh, by the way, internet, stop cheering on her feeding the the fucking children of her dead enemies to their father. Also, that's very Shakespearean. Yes, that's fucked up. Yeah, Arya Stark gross. needs to die. I hate to say it. Um. Anyway, wow. Totally got on a soapbox. Yeah. Um. So my favorite Stark is obviously Ned Stark. Ned Stark. You know, the first hero of the show. Sean Bean. And, um, you know, the man who says the sentence swings the sword. And uh, a guy that would rather besmirch his own honor by bringing his sister's bastard home as his own. Uh, You know, that's a that's a dude that a dude that could have sat on the Iron Throne, but would rather see his friend there. The guy that when asked to become the Hand of King didn't want it. The one person who doesn't want to be second in command under the king, right, is the one that's like, fuck, I kind of have to do this, don't I? Yeah. I love that character, always have, and, um, you know, always will, you know, and uh, I think all of his children, um, you know, that we've seen, they have all kind of failed to fully serve and live up to his memory. And that is the tragedy of the Starks. Yeah. If he were alive, he would he would not be happy with any of them. No. And that's a goddamn shame. That's a tragedy because his entire life was to try to make them better than he was. Everybody poor went out for Ned Stark. One of the, the he's actually the last true hero. Well, now you got Daenerys. Daenerys is a hero. Yeah. Like a true hero. This is a whole other conversation for another day. Who are the heroes of Game of Thrones? Go. Ooh, that's a good episode. Ooh. Who are the heroes? No heroes. Except for Daenerys. Till next time, guys. It's going to be two weeks. We miss you. Follow us on Twitter. We'll tweet out pictures. And uh, till next time, be kind. And hold the door. 